Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Aaron Schrank. On this episode, lawmakers wrapped up the legislative session this week, and many are leaving with a bad taste in their mouth. There were a lot of things that we did that um, personally I have issues with. We'll hear a story on how coal companies are declaring bankruptcy one after another. But in the Powder River Basin, mining continues. When it comes to bankruptcy, the ones that lose the most are the workers and the retirees. We'll also hear about what it's like to be the only woman in Wyoming's state Senate. That's something I never want to do is have anyone say, well, isn't that just like a woman? We'll also hear part two of a story on oil field worker deaths and an interview about a program to stop lead poisoning in eagles and ravens. That's all coming up on Open Spaces on Wyoming Public Radio News. Support for Open Spaces podcast comes from the Hobbs School of Environment and Natural Resources at the University of Wyoming, uwyo.edu slash h-a-u-b. Welcome to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Aaron Schrank. And I'm Melody Edwards. The 2016 Wyoming legislative session has come to an end, and few seem to be leaving Cheyenne feeling satisfied. Wyoming Public Radio's Bob Beck has more. One of the few people leaving with a positive feeling is Casper Representative Tim Stubson. Stubson was heavily involved in crafting the state budget and voted against such things as Medicaid expansion and voted for a number of the budget cuts. But he says when you look at the state's finances, those cuts were needed. Really, I think the job we did, it's certainly not a job that's complete, but it gets us in a position to deal with where we are economically going forward. And I think it was a balanced way to do it. It was, you know, not all savings. It wasn't all cutting. It was a balance of those two things. And don't tell Stubson that they stuck it to people while focusing on building projects. I mean, they look at $162 million out of the $3 billion budget that we're spending on capital construction. And that capital construction is all about people. It's about the state hospital. It's about the Life Resource Center in Lander. It's about uh, the university. I think this budget was all about people, and what it's about is sustaining over the long term our services to people. But another Appropriations Committee member doesn't feel quite as good. There were a lot of things that we did that um, personally I have issues with. Senator Jeff Wasserberger of Gillette says the state's financial situation is dire, and he says cuts had to happen, but they were difficult. I voted to cut those programs, so they were heart-wrenching votes, and they really bothered me. They bother me to this day, and I think the one that bothers me the most is the, the family literacy piece. Wasserberger says that program helped children and adults, and it cost 34 people their jobs. I'm not proud of it. I mean, I did. I did it, but I'm not proud of it. He says, had Medicaid expansion passed, several programs would not have been cut because they would have received enough federal money to pay for them. The only reason why I can think of that we're not taking the Medicaid money is because we're giving it to poor people. We would have taken it instantly if it had been for highways. If it had been for the university, we would have taken it instantly. If it would have been for K-12 schools, we take it all the time. To that point, Democrats strongly agree. House Minority Floor Leader Mary Throne's criticism of the Republican approach to budget cutting is that it was not done intelligently. She says lawmakers panicked and everyday people will pay the price. I almost would have preferred that we kind of held the line this year and then maybe over the interim had all the, the major legislative committees look at their departments and, and look for savings. I'm not opposed to cutting programs that don't work anymore or aren't needed. But you have to spend some time and think about it so you don't make mistakes. For Senate Minority Leader Chris Rothfuss, it was a mistake to cut education funding, and it was a mistake to not look to the future. Rothfuss says they should be aggressive and recruit new business and broaden the tax base. We have to have funds available that can allow us to recruit other industries, 
perhaps from information technology, biotechnology, anybody that's in a different sector. And that means that we have to be prepared to invest in infrastructure projects that are specific to recruiting or, or whatever else is necessary. You need a $100 million slush fund or something along those lines. Rothfuss says instead the state is taking austerity measures, which will allow it to fall behind other states who are recruiting more aggressively. He says they also have to enhance revenue coming into the state, and that means evening out the tax structure. Senator Hank Coe came to the legislature during the bust of the 1980s, and he's worried about spending too much. He doesn't think lawmakers overspent over the last decade, but he says tax increases are difficult. For the time being, Coe says cuts have to be on the table. I'm leaving here with mixed emotions. Um, I feel for these programs. I feel for the. I feel bad about the cuts we've we've made. But uh, bottom line is, uh, if you're at home and 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 your revenues go down and you can't make your budget work in your house. What do you do? You make cuts someplace. And for now, that seems to be the plan. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Bob Beck in Cheyenne. One of the big things lawmakers have been discussing over the past month is funding for Wyoming's K-12 schools. The House and Senate have agreed to a budget that will cut about $36 million from education in the next two school years. That's a 1% cut for next school year and a 1.4% cut for the following one. The cut is less than what the Joint Appropriations Committee proposed earlier this year, but school districts say they'll feel it. I spoke with Campbell County School District Superintendent Boyd Brown. How will the cuts impact school districts and students across the state? You know, Aaron, it will affect all 48 districts differently. Um, I'm certain that all of our school boards, superintendents, and business managers will try to keep the cuts from affecting as many students as possible. Some districts may adjust budgets regarding technology, curriculum, assessment, and other non-personnel budgets. Other districts may have to adjust programming. Some districts may have to adjust staffing. I know that we'll try to minimize the impact that it has on students, though. And Campbell County is a fairly large school district. What what might the impacts of those cuts look like in smaller school districts? You know, it, it's going to be difficult for the, the smaller school districts to, to absorb the cuts. When a, a small district has to cut uh, a person, it usually means they're cutting a program or possibly two programs if that person is endorsed in two different areas. Um, and I believe that that creates disparities between the large and small districts, and it's not equitable. Sure. And lawmakers approve these cuts because with the downturn of the energy industry, they are anticipating less revenue in the year ahead. You're there in Gillette. Uh, how might the downturn impact your school district on a local level? How, how could that make these state-level cuts even harder to swallow? You know, it really depends on what happens in, in the local district. And again, in Campbell County School District, if uh, we have a large downturn and we have a lot of people leaving the district and they're taking their kids with them, it will be uh, kind of a double-edged sword for us. We'll be losing students, which will um, reduce the amount of funding that we would get, and then we would also have to deal with these cuts as well. Sure. To understand how districts could be doubly impacted, as you're mentioning, it's probably important our listeners have at least a basic understanding of this school funding model in Wyoming. And, uh, you know, the state is mandated based on Supreme Court decisions that, that involved your school district, actually, to equally and adequately fund education on a per-student basis, as you mentioned. What else should listeners understand about how schools are funded in Wyoming? And then with that, is it fair to say that the model as it exists, the school funding model, should and does already correct for economic downturn facing the state? I believe that's the way the, the state's consultants designed the model and, and the way the model has been adopted by the legislature. The Wyoming school funding model was designed to adjust based on a number of factors, but the largest is the number of students enrolled in a school in the district for each year. If the number of students decrease in the school or the district, the amount of money a district is allotted from the state decreases. The model should adjust over time based on what's happening in the state and local districts. It would be locally driven. So areas that are increasing in students will still get an increase in their funding. Areas that are decreasing in students would uh, get that decrease. The school foundation program, where the money for school funding comes from, has the money to meet the budget projections based on the Craig report for this biennium. I would have liked to see the legislature allow the model to work based on the state's expert consultants. It should make those adjustments without any cuts. 
And then let's talk briefly about the external cost adjustment. Lawmakers say that the $36 million cut for the next two years will come out of what's called the external cost adjustment. It seems like the ECA is being used as the kind of the vehicle for these cuts. I know in the 2001 Campbell 2 case, the Wyoming Supreme Court said that the state must review its funding model regularly and adjust funding based on inflation at least every two years. So that's part of the school funding mandate, as I understand it, but it's not something lawmakers have kept up with recently. You and other superintendents have lobbied hard uh, over the last few years, and the ECA was restored last year, but now lawmakers say they're, they're taking it away again. What do you make of that, and what should folks understand about the ECA as we look at these cuts? You know, the external cost adjustment portion of the model is in place so that districts maintain purchasing power. Uh, It's an inflation or deflation adjustment that allows districts to maintain what they can purchase from year to year. I think the legislature, if they have the data that shows that we're in a time of deflation, they could make the cuts using the ECA. I don't believe that we're in an area of deflation, and so I don't believe cuts to the ECA are appropriate based on what the external cost adjustment is supposed to do for the model. If Wyoming continues to face a downturn, as a school district superintendent, how do you hope the state will approach K-12 education and, and funding in the years ahead? You know, I really hope that the legislature allows the adopted Wyoming school funding model the opportunity to work as the state consultants have designed it. In Wyoming, the Constitution requires us to have a free and appropriate education system like you talked about at the beginning. Education is the only entity in the state that I'm aware of that has a funding model that adjusts. All other agencies, programs, and entities of the state go through a budgeting process, and I believe that making across-the-board cuts to the model will wind up in unintended disparities and equities of funding for school districts across the state. So I really hope that they will allow that funding model just to go ahead and move forward and work the way it was designed by their consultants. Boyd Brown is the superintendent of Campbell County School District. He's been talking with us today about how state budget cuts to education will impact schools around Wyoming. Boyd, thanks again for your insights today. Thank you, Aaron. I really appreciate the opportunity to visit with you. Coming up, the second part of a story on several mysterious oil and gas worker deaths and what to make of all these coal bankruptcies. You're listening to Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Melody Edwards. And I'm Aaron Schrank. Since 2010, at least nine oil workers have died after being enveloped by clouds of petroleum gas. But many more are exposed as a routine part of doing their jobs. Inside Energy's Emily Guerin has part two of our story on deadly gases in the oil field. Ryan Ailis and I are driving his beat-up red pickup to an oil well pad in North Dakota. He's a truck driver who hauls crude oil. When times were good, Ryan made $175,000 a year. There's good money in it, but it's a hard way to live, too. Hard and dangerous. Before Ryan can fill his truck, he has to climb the oil storage tanks and open the hatch on top to sample and measure the oil, which is the same thing those nine oil workers were doing when they died. Is this the site? Yeah, that's it. Yeah. We pull up in front of a row of storage tanks on the oil well pad. Ryan was just here last night, buying oil, as he calls it. Yeah, when I went up here to buy oil yesterday, I came down and I was kind of dizzy and lightheaded from the gas. He tries to avoid it. But sometimes it doesn't work. And if there's gas in your face, you kind of hold your breath and then, you know, get your gauge and then step away and get into the fresh air and, <laughs> you know, and go, and then go do something again, you know. And so, but it's, you can't avoid it entirely. I have felt that buckling of the knees and the lightheadedness literally puking off the side of a tank. Dennis Schmitz is an oil and gas safety trainer who gets angry just thinking about the fact that guys like Ryan are still climbing crude oil tanks. This is a senseless exposure, right? This this is this makes no sense whatsoever. Makes no sense because there are safer ways to get crude oil measurements. They're commonly used in Canada and in the offshore oil and gas industry. In fact, Dennis has used them when he used to measure oil on tanker ships. And I never really question why is it in the offshore environment that I don't breathe the vapors there and I do breathe them here. Why? 
Money and Federal Regulations. The agency that oversees onshore oil and gas development on federal land is the Bureau of Land Management. BLM's outdated rules make it very hard to use safer oil measuring devices. From our side, and we're a technology company, it's maddening. That's Gary Wilson. I'm the general manager of Tank Logics, an oil field automation company. Their technology eliminates the need for workers to climb on top of oil tanks, but the BLM hasn't okayed it. Only one kind of automated measurement is allowed, but it's so expensive that most companies don't use it. Instead, they send their workers up on tanks. The BLM says it's just trying to make sure oil is accurately measured. That's according to Steve Wells, who oversees oil production on federal land. I mean, if it's a public asset, then the taxpayer deserves to have their money, their assets protected. So the BLM is really cautious about any new technology that might not be as accurate as sending guys up on tanks because money is at stake. The BLM is finally updating its 27-year-old rules, but the update won't ban manual oil measurement. Because some operators will say, well, then, you know, you basically just shut us down. We cannot comply. The agency won't make a final decision until the summer. Meanwhile, many oil companies are nervous about any new regulations right now. That's what the major oil and gas trade associations told BLM in written comments on the proposed rule. Quote, in an era of rising economic challenges, the BLM should not add unnecessary costs on oil and gas development. Back in North Dakota, truck driver Ryan Ayless pulls out his tablet to check how many loads of crude oil he has to haul tonight. So it's going to be a good night. I'll actually make some money. He's thought about doing other jobs, but there just isn't anything that pays as well. So he keeps hauling oil, putting himself at risk. There was only one time he had second thoughts, when a truck exploded on an oil well pad. He told me about it while we were driving earlier that day. I looked out my window and there's nothing but a huge orange fireball, probably 50 feet in the air. Everybody was running. (laughs) That was the one night that I questioned whether I should even be out here working. I'm like, is this worth it? The doubts lasted about 24 hours. And then Ryan got back to work. In this industry, it's easy to put money before worker safety for the BLM, the oil companies, and yes, for the workers themselves. For Inside Energy, I'm Emily Guerin. Peabody Energy's senior leaders recently recommended it file for bankruptcy. If the coal giant goes under, it would be the latest in a string of major producers filing for bankruptcy. But if you drive through one of the country's most productive coal regions, Wyoming's Powder River Basin, dynamite blasts still shake the earth and miners and gigantic trucks are still scooping up coal. So what does bankruptcy actually mean on the ground? Our Inside Energy reporter Lee Patterson has more. Bankruptcy does not mean that a business just shuts down. And as we've heard from Donald Trump, who owns a few companies that have filed for bankruptcy, it happens all the time. Out of hundreds of deals that I've done, hundreds, on four occasions, I've taken advantage of the laws of this country, like other people. I'm not going to Last year, nearly 25,000 businesses filed for bankruptcy in the U.S. Many of them filed for Chapter 11. In Chapter 11 bankruptcy, a company comes up with a reorganization plan that allows it to stay alive and pay back some of its debts over time. But that doesn't mean it's just business as usual. There are lots of different ways to work through the process, but one thing companies often do is cut jobs. It's a common story here in eastern Kentucky. The coal industry continues to see round after round of layoffs. This TV news report about potential cuts at Alpha Natural Resources is from July just weeks before the company declared bankruptcy. According to data from S&P Global Market Intelligence, Central Appalachia lost around 19 percent of its coal mining jobs last year. In Wyoming, the drop was a lot smaller, just 1.5 percent. But coal's financial struggles do have a wide reach in the state. Recent data shows that around 40 percent of the coal produced in Wyoming was mined by a company in bankruptcy. I'm very worried about what's going to happen. That's Gene Wagner, a former miner who lives in Gillette, Wyoming. Because coal mining has done a lot for the communities and it's done a lot for the people that work at them. Although Wyoming hasn't been hit with major layoffs, Gene Wagner's worry is real. 
Wyoming mines are still churning out coal, like this one, owned by bankrupt Alpha Natural Resources, but they're churning out less of it. Production is down in the state by 14 percent since 2011, and revenues from that production are down too. And then there's another impact to worry about, cuts to retiree benefits like medical and life insurance. When it comes to bankruptcy, the ones that lose the most are the workers and the retirees. That's Cecil Roberts. He is the union president of the United Mine Workers of America. Roberts was arrested a few years ago at a protest in West Virginia. Crowds gathered to demonstrate against Patriot Coal, a spinoff of Peabody Energy, because the company was trying to reduce benefits for thousands of unionized workers. After many rounds of complicated negotiations, Patriot's estimated $1.3 billion in benefits were reduced to a pool of just $400 million to fund future health care costs. A similar scenario is now playing out with Alpha Natural Resources. The company has asked a judge for permission to cut medical and life insurance for nearly 5,000 non-union retirees. In court documents, the company refers to this $125 million liability as a, quote, financial burden, and getting rid of it would, quote, enhance the debtor's prospects of a successful reorganization. But Cecil Roberts points out that a successful reorganization is not a sure thing. There's a strong possibility, and we'll see how it ends up. But Alpha Natural Resources could very well cease to exist themselves. According to a bankruptcy database run by UCLA, since the year 2000, 36 percent of large public companies have not emerged from bankruptcy. And the uncertainty doesn't end there. I think there's a very significant uh, potential problem and risk to the taxpayer with the pretty high-profile bankruptcies that have taken place uh, recently with uh, coal companies. That was Sally Jewell, the Interior Secretary at a recent Senate hearing, answering questions about mine cleanup. And that brings us to the final impact of going under, in this story anyway, coal mine reclamation costs. Major bankrupt coal companies in Wyoming have hundreds of millions of dollars in cleanup liabilities on their books. These are among the many debts being dealt with in bankruptcy court. And ultimately, the hope is that the companies will emerge from bankruptcy and be able to put up assurances like cash or surety bonds for those reclamation responsibilities. And that's the thing. Although bankruptcy can impact coal communities, many really want companies to make it through alive, because shutting down completely could be even worse. And that's the outcome Pat Sweeney is hoping for. He's advocated for Western land issues for over 40 years. I mean, from our point of view, we want coal companies that continue to operate because a viable coal company is the one who's the best at reclaiming the land. Negotiations are ongoing between bankrupt coal companies and their creditors over which debts will be paid back, by how much, and in what order. But at least in one recent case, there's a bill that will likely be paid. In January, a bankruptcy judge approved up to $12 million in bonuses for executives at Alpha Natural Resources. For Inside Energy, I'm Lee Patterson. Coming up on the show, we'll talk about why Eagles and Ravens are getting lead poisoning and hear about the sudden death of the former CEO of Chesapeake Energy. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces from Wyoming Public Radio News. I'm Aaron Schrank. And I'm Melody Edwards. For years, no one could figure out why birds of prey were turning up with extremely high levels of lead poisoning. The issue made headlines when the newly reintroduced condor in California began dying off from lead exposure. Craighead Beringia South is a group of wildlife researchers in Kelly, Wyoming, who are among the scientists who started studying the problem in other species back in the early 2000s. They found that such scavengers as eagles and ravens were ingesting lead bullet fragments left in the elk and deer gut piles left behind by hunters. So they started handing out free copper bullets to see if that helped. I visited their office in the tiny town of Kelly, a goose honking in their front yard, to talk to researcher Ross Crandall about the results of their work. 
Given the fact that here in Jackson Hole we have a really high population of ravens, and we have this um, hunting season here, you know, there's a, there's, you've got hunting on the refuge, you've got hunting in the park, hunting in, in the surrounding area, we thought it was a perfect opportunity to look at um, whether or not lead was an issue for um, ravens initially. We test the blood lead. Basically, it's a way that you can test blood or test the lead in the bird um, without you know having to kill the bird. And basically, what we found, we had other raven studies going at that time, and what we found was that during the hunting season, um, blood lead levels really spiked. And so, during trapping, we'd see a lot of of um, eagles, especially on the, our trapping baits, and so we thought, well, you know, this might be a good opportunity to look at uh, lead exposure in eagles. And basically, what we found was the same thing. You know, these spikes um, in blood lead levels during hunting seasons. Maybe you could talk about, you know, what the signs of lead poisoning are in some of these birds. Sure. So, if a bird, say an eagle, for instance, has lead poisoning, it almost acts as if it's like really drunk or something. It's really slow, droopy wings, um, heads drooped down. Um, it's very obviously sick. And that's, you know, when it has sort of advanced stages of, of lead poisoning. So we thought, okay, well, we've, we've sort of identified this, this spike in blood levels during the hunting season. So, you know, what are we gonna do about it now? What, how can we continue this study? And what we ended up doing was starting a um, non-lead um, ammunition um, program, basically where we are giving hunters um, in the refuge or in the park free non-lead ammunition. And so, you know, the, the whole thing with this issue is that there's a really obvious um, and readily available um, source of non-lead ammunition, and that's usually copper, gilding metals, and another, another um, non-lead uh, rifle ammunition bullet. What we found was um, as the number of basically blood lead levels is correlated with, with harvest, so the more animals that are harvested with lead bullets, the higher the exposure. When people started using um, non-lead, that exposure went down. So basically, it was an effective way to minimize lead exposure to eagles. And so what has been the uh, reception to this idea of um, switching to non-lead bullets? So in, when we were giving away non-lead bullets and selling non-lead bullets, we did a lot of interacting with, with hunters that were you know coming to get their free bullets. And one of the things that the copper ammunition has going for it is that it's incredibly effective so copper bullets are just a really good premium hunting bullet so it's not like we had to sell the bullet um, for the most part you know i mean 99 percent of the people we interacted with were were completely for it now is this uh you know these copper bullets are they something that are more expensive um are, are they harder to find they are um, more expensive you know they're a premium bullet and they're loaded as premium bullets so you know, if you're looking at buying basically the cheapest ammunition that you can, you know, a lot of people, hunting season's coming up, they'll just run into the hardware store or something and buy the cheapest ammo they can, and that might be, say, $20 a box. And copper ammunition or, or other non-lead ammunition is, um, you know, maybe f for a, a, a common caliber, 270, 30-06, might be, you know, $40, $45 a box. Um, but compared to other premium ammunition, you know, there's certainly premium lead ammunition, and that's going to be roughly the same price. Is this an issue that's going to be something that you are seeing elsewhere besides the uh, Jackson area, or is this something that um, is kind of a, a concern mostly here? Uh, I mean, our, our research is focused here, but it's a problem everywhere else. You know, certainly if you look at um, in the Midwest, you know, specifically where you've got sort of, you know, I'm from Wisconsin, you've got a nine-day deer hunting season, and the number of eagles that are submitted to uh, uh, rehab facilities with lead poisoning during that time skyrockets. So it's not at all just a Jackson-specific issue. And so maybe you could talk just a little bit about, you know, what, why it is that, that, that these birds are getting lead into their system. What, what's the scenario where they are actually um, getting that into their bodies? So basically a hunter shoots, you know, here we'll say an elk. So a hunter shoots an elk with a lead bullet. Between the time that bullet enters the animal and leaves the animal, it can lose. It depends on a lot of things, but it can lose, you know, 20 to even 50 percent of its weight. It's called weight retention. So that 
weight loss ends up being fragments so it's lead fragments and those those fragments can go a lot of them are around you know the wound channel where the bullet actually goes through the animal but they can be as far as 18 inches or more uh, from that wound channel and so the hunter goes retrieves his animal he guts it so he leaves the offal in the field and so you've got this um, offal left behind that you know, potentially has all these little lead fragments. And so a raven or an eagle comes in to feed on it because it's a great meal for them and they just ingest those those particles. Yeah. Now, um, I know that you guys have an initiative that you're kind of working on with the National Elk Refuge. Can you talk a little bit about uh, how you're collaborating with, with that agency and are you reaching out to any other wildlife agencies? Most recently, you know, it's, it's worth saying that the Grand Teton National Park, they have their herd reduction program they require all hunters to use non-lead ammunition. And the refuge has been great by, um, you know, advocating sort of a voluntary switch. And, you know, this year, I think they had somewhere around 70% of the successful elk hunters use non-lead ammunition, which we just think is fantastic. And we feel that hunters, you know, traditionally hunters are, you know, conservationists, hunters do care a lot about what's going on out there. And so we feel that, you know, by educating the hunters, a lot of hunters are going to go out if they haven't already and make that switch to, um, to using non-lead ammunition because, you know, they'll know when they walk away from that gut pile, there's no lead in it. And, uh, you know, we're pretty confident that at least most of them, once they know the information, will, will make the switch. Well, thank you very much for sharing this information. Thank you. That was wildlife researcher Ross Crandall talking about lead poisoning in eagles and ravens. Historically, electricity pricing has been pretty straightforward. The more you use, the more you pay. But today, that simple equation is not so simple. Increasingly, the time of day when you use electricity factors into the cost as well. As Wyoming Public Radio's Stephanie Joyce reports, so-called time-of-use pricing saves money and energy, but it's not always popular. You're probably already familiar with the concept of of time-of-use pricing, just maybe not for electricity. Let's talk about parking for a second. If you pull into a parking garage in downtown Denver on a Tuesday morning at 8 a.m. and want to park there all day, you're going to fork over some serious cash. It is $17 a day to park. Pull into that same parking garage on a Saturday at 8 a.m.? $5. Brandy Gall, the Denver office manager for Douglas Parking, says the price varies so much for a very simple reason. Supply and demand. On weekdays, a lot of people want to park downtown. On weekends, not so much. Electricity demand fluctuates, too. For example... Four o'clock on a hot summer afternoon, everyone's starting to get home from work. They're plugging in and turning on their air conditioners. They're turning on their TV and lights. And all of a sudden, power demand is just rising and rising. That's Mark Dyson, a power expert at the Rocky Mountain Institute, a think tank. He says right now, most utilities deal with those spikes in demand by turning on natural gas power plants built specifically for that situation. Those power plants are just sitting around waiting to be used on hot summer afternoons. He's not exaggerating. A lot of those natural gas peaker plants only run a few days a year. But there's another way to do things, one that doesn't involve building huge, expensive power plants. What if we just avoided turning on our air conditioners all at once? Energy costs more during peak hours from 2 to 7 p.m. weekdays when demand is highest. But shift some of your use to the other 19 weekday hours or all weekend and you can save risk-free. That's an advertisement from Oklahoma Gas and Electric, one of the early adopters of -of time-of-use pricing. For the last few years, the company has had a program called Smart Hours. Customers who sign up for it pay more between 2 and 7 p.m. in the summer, when it costs the utility more to make electricity, and less the rest of the time, when it costs less. Kathleen O'Shea is a spokeswoman for OG&E. The price can range anywhere from half price, which is about five cents, up to 43. 43 cents a kilowatt obviously is intended to motivate them to not use as much, but, hey, that's, that's their choice. Most people choose to cut back on their use when the price is highest, usually by cooling their homes in the morning and then turning off their air conditioners when prices rise in the afternoon. 
O'Shea says people sign on because it saves them money. You know, the average savings has kind of hovered between $100 and $200 for kind of the four-month period we offer it. But that's an average. And then there are the super savers. You'll have people who are saving $500, $600 because, you know, some people just really get into this kind of stuff. OG&E is also saving a lot of money by not having to build more power plants. I don't think any utility really wants to go out and build a new power plant. Which is one reason utilities from Oregon to Colorado to Texas are starting to offer time-of-use pricing for residential customers. In California, they're taking it one step further. In 2019, time-of-use pricing will become the default for the state's three largest utilities. Mark Dyson, the power expert with the Rocky Mountain Institute, says he anticipates some pushback. After all, in the past, we never had to think about when we used electricity. But he says in the future, technology will make it so we don't have to again. And that ultimately, time-of-use pricing will be good for everyone. It, it, it saves money for the folks that are able to reduce their consumption during peak hours. And it also saves money for the rest of the customers in the utility service territory who don't have to finance the construction of a new power plant just to meet peak demand. And maybe someday it will seem just as natural as paying different prices for parking on weekdays and weekends. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Stephanie Joyce. The U.S. oil and gas industry was shocked this week by the sudden death of one of its most influential executives. Aubrey McClendon was killed after driving his SUV into a concrete embankment, a day after being indicted on bid rigging and price-fixing charges. He was the former CEO of Chesapeake Energy, a major producer now floundering under low oil and gas prices. Our Inside Energy reporter Dan Boyce explores whether Chesapeake's cautionary tale contains glimmers of hope. Listening to reports from the oil field, BP plans to cut its upstream workforce to fewer It's than one long string of bad news. More cuts at Halliburton. Anadarko Petroleum reports a one and a quarter billion dollar fourth quarter loss. You're hearing this everywhere. In Colorado, where I'm based, it's been in Canna and Noble cutting jobs. Those are some of the big players. A lot of smaller companies are just shutting down. But when you look at companies in trouble in this oil crash, there's just something different about Oklahoma-based Chesapeake Energy. Chesapeake was was really symbolic. That's Joe Wirtz. Energy and environment reporter at State Impact Oklahoma. And symbolic because the company was one of the key leaders of the U.S. oil and gas boom of the last decade, aggressive with new technologies and taking big risks, leasing a lot of land with oil and gas locked up in tight shale rock formations. They talked about themselves as the world's biggest fracker. All this under the leadership of co-founder Aubrey McClendon. Chesapeake grew so fast, becoming the country's second largest producer of natural gas in the mid-2000s and making McClendon a billionaire. Steve Trammell, an oil and gas expert with analytics firm IHS, he says all this rush helped lead to where we are today. I mean, everybody kind of caught shale fever. Chesapeake took out a ton of loans, trying to grab up as much land and drill as much as they could. Their debt balance just got out of whack. Chesapeake helped inspire so much drilling that it led to a huge oversupply. Natural gas prices crashed in 2008, and just like that, Chesapeake was in trouble. In 2013, the company forced Aubrey McClendon out. New leadership is trying to get Chesapeake's finances under control, but not an easy task, especially as oil prices tanked in the last year and a half. Chesapeake is beating back bankruptcy rumors. The company lost almost $15 billion in 2015, and its stock is trading at 4 bucks, down 75% from a year ago. Like many other oil and gas companies, they are drowning in debt and are selling off assets. Yet Steve Trammell points out a flip side to all this. Chesapeake is selling a lot of stuff. That means somebody is buying it. The people who have good balance sheets are able to pick up some bargains right now and get some assets they might not have ever had access to when prices were stronger than they are. Example, Denver-based Four Point Energy recently purchased 3,500 of Chesapeake's oil and gas wells in western Oklahoma and the Texas Panhandle. This is a sweet deal for Four Point. They're a small company. With the purchase, they produce about a tenth of what Chesapeake does. But these are good wells, and oil and gas prices have been so low for a while now. Could these kinds of purchases, like Four Points, be a good sign for oil and gas? Is there any sense that it represents, oh, we might be hitting the bottom of the trough, so to speak? 
Well, that, that's the hope, and the, the oil price has been trying to find its bottom with both hands lately, right? Whether we've hit that bottom is a prediction that seems wise one day and shaky the next. The world is still awash in oil and gas. Some of the biggest oil countries, led by Russia and Saudi Arabia, are working on a deal to freeze production levels. But even if that happens, there's no guarantee the oil and gas glut will ease anytime soon. Meanwhile, in Chesapeake Energy Country, Oklahoma reporter Joe Wirtz says the local economy and tax base are feeling the effects, and companies like Chesapeake are just working to stay alive. And try to make it through uh, to drill another day. For Inside Energy, I'm Dan Boyce. Inside Energy is a public media collaboration focused on America's energy issues. In the last segment of our show, we'll hear about the challenges of getting women to run for office. This is Open Spaces. Welcome back to Open Spaces. I'm Aaron Schrank. And I'm Melody Edwards. Across the United States, women make up just under a quarter of state legislators. In Wyoming, the statistics are even worse. Only 13% of legislators are women. That makes the Equality State 50th in the nation. Wyoming Public Radio's Caroline Ballard reports that part of the problem is no one's asking them to run. If you watch the Wyoming Senate vote on a bill, you might notice something. Aye, All of the senators raising their voices to vote are men. Aye, Aye, All except Aye. one. Aye, Kraft. Aye, Dr. Bernadine Kraft is a Aye. state senator Aye. from Sweetwater County, Aye. and she is the only woman in the state Senate. She says that the main reason she is there is because she was asked to run by Senator Raylan Job, who once held the Senate seat Kraft has now. But at the time, she was still in the Senate and was looking for somebody to run for the House and came and talked to me and talked to me. It took about three months to talk me into running. After Job had talked Kraft into running, she also went out of her way to help her file to run. We couldn't file online, so you had to you had to come and file in person in Cheyenne. Raylan drove my application to Cheyenne so it would get here in time. That's a four-hour drive from Rock Springs. According to a 2013 study done by American University, 40% of men are encouraged to run for office at some point in their life. Just 29% of women report the same, even though both sexes respond well to encouragement. Kraft says even though she is the only woman in the Senate, she doesn't feel pressured to represent all Wyoming women in their political interests. But she does try to represent women in the way she conducts herself on the Senate floor. She says there are times when testimony or debate can get emotional, and she has even had to step into the bathroom to cry. But then you dry your eyes and you put more lipstick on and you touch up your makeup and you go back in and, and you represent as, as passionately as you can without letting the emotionality of the issue get you because that's, that's something I never want to do is have anyone say, well, isn't that just like a woman? About 25 years ago, Wyoming actually ranked 11th in the U.S. for its share of women in the legislature. Back then, Wyoming had multi-member districts, where multiple candidates from a party would run on a ticket, depending on a county's population. That meant more women could be included without having to run head-to-head against another opponent, something that can be especially daunting if that opponent is an incumbent. But in the 90s, multi-member districts were done away with by the courts in favor of single-member districts, and term limits were struck down, too. Yes, it is possible to uh, have term limits imposed. Yes, it's it's possible to return to multi-member districts, but the barriers, the obstacles uh, that those changes would face are uh, quite high. That's Dr. Jim King, a political science professor at the University of Wyoming. He says people should instead look to community members who serve on advisory boards or in local leadership roles and get them thinking about running. It's a fostering of uh, opportunities uh, rather than changing the system as a whole. National organizations like She Should Run form networks that help women run, and some states like Utah are starting their own versions on a smaller scale. But in Wyoming, there is no organization that specifically encourages, supports, and mentors women who want to run for office throughout the filing process and campaign season. Nimi McConaughey served in the Wyoming House of Representatives in the 90s. 
She says a mentorship group is a great idea, something she would like to be a part of. Very much so. You know, I've been out of legislative life now for almost 20 years, but uh, I'm very much engaged with uh, concerns in the community and in the state. McConaughey is a South Asian woman. The share of women and minorities in the legislature now is low, but she says being a mentor could show that running and winning is possible. If I could do it, coming from India, a woman who looks like me and identifies as I do, to be validated and to be affirmed, to be elected to the Wyoming State Legislature, made it possible for any child who was, uh, you know, different to aspire to do the same thing. For her part, Bernadine Kraft says she would welcome more women in the Senate. I just think that it's a different tone and it's a different voice and it needs to be heard. And and I have never felt like my voice wasn't heard, but it's one among 29 others. This is an election year, though, and Kraft's voice could be joined by other women soon. Candidates can file to run for the legislature in May. For Wyoming Public Radio, I'm Caroline Ballard. The Grand Teton Music Festival is a major event for classical music in the summer. Now the festival is expanding with an inaugural winter music event. Executive Director Andrew Todd tells Wyoming Public Radio's Micah Schweitzer this month's mini festival is about two larger goals. The first is ensuring that the festival is fully integrated into the Jackson Hole community and Wyoming. And the second is being a leader in ensuring that Jackson Hole becomes uh, a destination for the arts. When we think about Jackson Hole's place in the classical music universe, we look at other um, summer venues, and we think we should be mentioned in the same breath as a Santa Fe Opera, an Aspen Music Festival, a Tanglewood, because the quality is there. The orchestra is incomparable. The setting's incomparable. Donald Runnicles is fantastic and coming up on his 10th anniversary with us. So all of those pieces are in play. What we've not yet fully realized as an organization, which we are beginning to do now, is really to attract national attention. That led us to uh, what type of programming can we do year-round, and then hopefully the next part of that will be what can we do in music education in Teton County and the surrounding areas also to be further integrated into the community. And education has always been a component of the festival, uh, not just performances, not just concerts, but also lectures. And you're, and you're replicating that with this winter event as well. One of the really interesting things about the 10 events that we have about four days is it's bringing together a lot of disparate programs we've had, including our music education program, which happens in the schools called Tune Up. So all of the artists that are appearing will be doing some type of school programs. And what's remarkable about classical musicians that we deal with is they're all so happy and willing to do it. And not in the way that you're being interviewed and you say, oh, yeah, they're willing to do it. (laughs) These are things they really want to do. Because? They all believe that it's their responsibility to ensure that classical music has a future audience. Let let me ask you about the audience at the Grand Teton Music Festival, age demographics. Are you following the the basic trends of, of older audiences that a lot of classical music is? The short answer is yes. The long answer is, what are you doing to broaden the appeal of the festival? We actually ended last year with a 30% increase in overall attendance. And we attributed that to ensuring that uh, there was a lot of access um, to locals. We had this very odd realization of something that's right in front of you, which is you have this world-class product, but you haven't yet reached all of the people in your backyard who are interested in going. And and the barriers can be many in classical music. It can be the cost, it can be location, what do I wear, when do I clap, and all of that. And that led us to presenting classical music in different venues and galleries and really using those as magnets to drive people uh, to the festival orchestra concerts on the weekends and taking some of that, uh, of our successes there, and using it for this winter music. Andrew Todd, you talk about... Uh, wanting to change the accessibility of classical music. And you have actually a really interesting program coming up. Um, you know, Charlie Albright performing uh, Chopin. Um, but then you, on the other end of the spectrum, have Sybarite Five, and they might play Mozart and then follow it with their arrangement of a Radiohead song. And the commonality between both groups is they're very accessible. They speak on stage. So Charlie Albright's program is Beethoven and Chopin. 
and all of the pieces feature some type of variation, including an improvisation that Charlie Albright does himself. And it's a very compelling thing that he does. It's almost 19th century in which he asks the audience for a theme and then he improvises on the spot. And it's fantastic. He did it for us this summer and it's, it really sort of blows your mind because you know that it's happening right there. And, he, and it's something we expect in jazz, even in rock music to a certain degree. Oh, absolutely. And in classical music, it was very much 1830s, Franz Liszt was doing this, you know, yeah, it's very much what's it. very old is very new again. And he definitely has it. He, Charlie grew out of a jazz tradition before he took classical lessons. So he, he sort of went, went the other way. You always hear people, eh, they're classically trained. He started from an improvisation background, and that's very much his, his native language. But it also informs his performances, which feel very fresh and improvised. Sybarite Five, um, and if people aren't familiar with the island of Sybarite, but all public radio listeners are, they should, <laughs> they should look it up. Um, it's a very interesting island from bygone days. Um, of of, of uh, what, pleasure seekers? Yes. The, uh, public radio interviews are the best. You never get that lead in anywhere else. Sybarite <laughs> <laughs> Five is a group that I met in Aspen probably 10 or 15 years ago. And I've heard him do everything from Miles Davis to Radiohead to traditional string quintets. But again, it's about engagement with the audience, making sure that they're a part of the performance. When I speak to groups a lot, they assume that all performers are extroverts and that they're playing to the room. It's actually quite the opposite. Performance is the art of inviting people in so that you can share something with them. And both of these artists do that in their own way. And both of these artists then are in some way expanding the audience's notion of what classical music is or what it sounds like or what it feels like to attend a concert. And the hope is that by reinventing yourself always, as classical music has done for 500 years, you'll continue to attract an audience. That's Grand Teton Music Festival Executive Director Andrew Todd. Winter Music runs March 15th through 18th in Jackson. A full schedule is at gtmf.org. for listening to Open Spaces. If you missed a part of our program or want to hear a segment again, you can find it at our website at wyomingpublicmedia.org. Just click on Open Spaces. You can listen to the show whenever you like when you sign up for our podcast, either on our website or through iTunes. We'd appreciate it if you would both rate and comment on the podcast. Anna Rader is our web editor. Open Spaces is a production of Wyoming Public Radio News.